24th chapter of Matthew where Jesus is presenting to his disciples what we know of today as the Olivet Discourse. We've been studying this for the last few weeks. And we're moving relatively slowly through this text because we want to make sure that it is hopefully clear in everyone's mind as much as is possible because it is somewhat of a conflicting series of statements that Jesus does make here and conflicting in the sense that there are many different understandings of what Jesus has presented to his disciples and to us. And so we take the position that what Jesus is referring to in this passage primarily has to do with the nation of Israel, not the church, although the church is central to all of what is being taught here. There is no reason for any of us to think that he's speaking directly about these events as they pertain to the church, but rather these events as they pertain to the people of Israel, the Jewish nation. And those who disagree are good brothers and sisters in the Lord that this has nothing to do with uh, a difference of opinion that should separate us from our loving one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord. But they are definitely teaching different things than what you are hearing from me this morning in many churches. And there are many churches that agree exactly with what I am saying. So there is a kind of a division that is unfortunately part of the reason why these portions of Scripture that we're reading are so really very relevant for us in these last days because it wasn't until these last days in which we are now presently living that some of these things have become more alive to everyone in the world around us who have studied these words and are beginning now to see that Jesus was indeed talking about things that are going to be taking place in the future. They have not yet happened as so many of the church have presented in their understanding of these passages, but now there is an awakening of more and more of the church that is beginning to focus now on these events that Jesus is here speaking of as being very near, as being even at the door. And if that is the case, and I believe that it is, then we should be ready. We should be, as Jesus instructed his disciples, looking up for our redemption is drawing near. So that's why these things are so very important to us as we study them today. We need to know what's going to be happening as much as we are able so that we can first Know that God's Word is complete and God's Word is true and God's Word is what we need to stand upon unfailingly, unwaveringly, and trusting in Him that He will accomplish all that He has spoken in this passage and others as well because it is truly the Word of God, not the Word of men. So we take that very seriously. We actually need to understand some things. Jesus had said to his disciples almost 2,000 years ago, it was imperative that they understood. He said, understand these things. He said it more than once. It implies that we are able then to understand what it is that he is saying to the church today. With that in mind, I have pointed out that there are multitudes of scriptures that point to these last days events that we're looking at that Jesus is describing here. And I wanted you to know that I have put together a kind of a chart of Scripture references and events that are still yet to be fulfilled. There's a copy of it for everyone who wants to take it home with you. You can study this, make a habit of looking at this portion of uh, 
scripture that we're doing today in light of all these scripture references regarding those events that are listed. Now, I have to admit that we don't know the actual order of these events because they're future. The first two that are listed, the Ezekiel War, for instance, and you can't see this, but I've got it in front of me, but in that chart that I have just mentioned, the list of events starts with the Ezekiel War, and then second after that is the rapture of the church. Now, nobody knows whether one or the other will happen first. But we should all realize that they both are going to take place. I put the Ezekiel War first for no particular reason. It just happened to be there in that order. But if the rapture happens first, then it's very likely that the Ezekiel War will take place sometime after. The rapture of the church can take place at any time. So can that war. And things are being already set up. I've mentioned oftentimes the stage is being set. The final act is about to open before our eyes. And we will start to see some of these things take place. But certainly not from this point of view. Some of these things that are going to take place will be after we're gone. In fact, most of them will. But the Ezekiel War could possibly happen before the rapture of the church. And it's interesting, when you put these things in, in, into place in, in a different order, uh, you have to realize that, well, yeah, it could happen this way. The Ezekiel War will happen, and, and then the rapture of the church immediately following that, and then chaos will ensue, and the man of peace will come on the scene. That's exactly what we would expect to be a likely scenario. Or the rapture of the church could take place first. I'm kind of hoping for that. And then because of the departure of the church, all chaos breaks loose throughout the world, and then Russia and Turkey and Iran and all of the others, Libya and Sudan, that are joining forces with them in the Ezekiel War will say, the United States isn't going to do anything because they are so terribly shaken by this event that just took place that they won't interfere with us going into Israel and taking the spoil. That's a possibility too. So the Ezekiel War could be a consequence of the rapture, or the rapture could take place after the Ezekiel War just because God wants to mix it up a little bit and do it his way. And it always is his way, isn't it, that we have to believe? Not what somebody else might say, not what the Jehovah's Witnesses might say, not what the Mormons might say, not with what any other cult might say, not with even the Muslims believe that Jesus Christ was a prophet, and they're expecting his return also. Shiite Muslims teach that. Very, very strict adherence to the writings of Muhammad and others in the Muslim faith. The twelfth imam will make use of Jesus when he takes control according to the Muslim faith of those events that will take place in the last days. The Bible knows nothing of what Islam says, but I'm just pointing out that they also believe in Jesus Christ coming a second time. Most of the American church doesn't think about that. This is strictly important, and I believe that this is a supplement to what we're looking at today, and I would encourage you again to take a look at it. After the Ezekiel war and the rapture of the church comes the Antichrist. That's when he will be revealed. A window of time may take place between those events. Nobody has ever suggested, I don't think, with regard to the rapture of the church, that 
the Antichrist has to come on the scene immediately following that. It will probably be a number of days, weeks, months perhaps. Nobody can tell for certain. There will be a time where the world will be in chaos and wondering what are we going to do now. The world will be wanting peace and that is when the Antichrist will come on the scene and will establish a covenant with the nation of Israel and will begin that process of making a world peace but not really true peace. He comes riding on a white horse, the book of Revelation tells us. But immediately following that come famine, pestilence, wars, death. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, they're referred to, found in the book of Revelation, chapter 6. Antichrist will be revealed. Then the 144,000 Jewish believers, witnesses, They will have been converted, chosen by God, and appointed to be the evangelists during that seven-year period of the tribulation that will come upon the face of the earth. That's an amazing group of Jewish men. Given by tribe in the book of Revelation, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, and not only that, but there will be two other witnesses in Jerusalem, and nobody knows who they are. We suspect who they might be, but that's irrelevant for this particular context in which we're finding ourselves today. There are two witnesses that will be in Jerusalem for the first three and a half years of that seven-year period of time known as the Tribulation. They will be there and they will be performing miracles, signs and wonders, and many people will be converted by their witness. Then, in the middle of the seven-year period of Tribulation, The Antichrist, known from the book of Revelation as the beast, will stand in the temple. And according to Paul, which we read the last time, he'll proclaim himself to be God. And it is at that time when he will require everybody on the face of the earth who are still alive during that period of time and following for the next three and a half years to take a mark on the forehead or on the hand, and if they do not, they will not be able to buy or sell. He'll have complete control at the beginning of the seven years of tribulation. He is going to be working toward that goal. He won't establish total world control, global control, economically, politically, and religious control, only when he makes himself to be God. The implication in the word of God is that he will be assassinated and restored to life miraculously. And that's why everybody on the earth is going to say, wow, this is the Messiah. Satan will be dwelling in him at that hour. The seven years, total seven years of tribulation are indeed a time of Jacob's trouble that none of us wants to even consider the possibility of us having to go through it. I wouldn't suggest to anyone that it would be a good idea, if you're not a believer, to kind of wait it out and see what happens. The tribulation, once the church is gone, will be a time of evil such as no one has ever known. The tribulation period, once the church is gone, will be total anarchy, total chaos, total destruction, and much death.
But the Jewish population in that day, at the middle of the tribulation period, a portion of them, what is known as the remnant, will be spared the final judgments of those last three and a half years. They will be protected by God. They will draw, they will be drawn from Israel, the land of Israel and elsewhere, to a place where they will be protected for that last three and a half years. Many believe, I believe, it'll be the city, the ancient city of Petra, in what is now southern Jordan today, around the Dead Sea. All of these things are spoken of very, very meticulously in detail in many places in the Word of God, and that's why I suggest this uh, sheet of events and scripture references may be helpful for you, that you can take the time, hopefully, to read and discover for yourselves what the Word of God truly does reveal for us. Then after that seven years of tribulation comes what we refer to as the glorious appearing. Jesus Christ coming to the earth. The prophet Zechariah explains very specifically. Isaiah explains very specifically. We are told in many places in both the Old and New Testaments that Jesus is going to come with his saints and that's you and I who are believers in Christ Jesus today. We will be with him when he comes and sets feet his feet on the Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And the mountain will be split in two. There will be a great earthquake at that hour. He's coming to judge all of those who are remaining on the earth at that time, after the end of that tribulation period. There will be many Jews, many Gentiles who will have survived. The first thing that he does is he takes the beast, the Antichrist, and his prophet, and he casts them into the sea of the lake of fire. He judges all of the people who are remaining on the earth at that hour. He separates the goats from the sheep. You'll find that in Matthew's Gospel also. We'll look at that in our near future if the Lord tarries. He separates them for one reason, to judge those who did not do what He expected for them to do on behalf of His own people, the Jews they would be cast into the lake of fire. The others would enter into a kingdom that he will rule over. He will reign for a period of a thousand years. That's what we refer to as the millennial reign of Christ. Only those who are still alive at the time that he brings this judgment will enter into that reign of Christ in their mortal bodies. But their lives will somehow miraculously be by the hand of God extended. And you can see that extension of lifetimes spoken of by Isaiah and it's given to us in Isaiah and other places that those people will live as long as apparently Adam and those who lived during his generation and following lived as well. Remember, Methuselah lived 969 years. Adam lived 930 years. I believe that mankind will come back to that state where they'll be able to have extended lifetimes like that. Isaiah tells us that a man or woman who dies at the age of 100 will be considered a child when he or she passes away. It means then that there will be still death during that time, but life will be prolonged. But that's the thousand-year reign of Christ. What happens after that? 
is simply the fact that all that time, during the thousand year reign of Christ, Satan will have been bound, but he's going to be let loose for a season. And Satan will gather together all of those who are still in their mortal bodies who didn't really want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ during his 1,000 year reign. They are going to rebel. They will come under Satan's attempt to convince them that they can defeat the king. And they all will be also wiped out by the Father in heaven. The end is about to come. The white throne judgment will follow that. And all those who were Christ rejectors, those who that were just were, were annihilated by the Lord, all of those who were dead from all the ages, raised up, whoever had not been a Christ follower, whoever had not believed in Jesus Christ, rejected the promises of God, they will at that time be raised up and they will be judged. The church will have already been judged at the Bema Seat, 1,007 years before that. The Bema Seat judgment for the believers is not a judgment for salvation. It is a judgment for rewards. They are two distinct and separate events. But the great white throne judgment is a judgment for those who rejected Christ. And they will be shown, the books will be open. They will be given the reason why they cannot enter into the Lord's presence forever. And they will all be cast out into outer darkness. Those are the events that we are expecting to take place. In what order, in what time frame, we cannot tell. But after that period of judgment, the Lord God will make a new heaven and a new earth, and we will be forever with Him in that new environment that will be created. A sinless environment. All of that time during the thousand year reign of Christ and during the tribulation period, we as the believers will have been with Jesus in our glorified bodies. That's what we teach. That's what Jesus teaches in this passage that we're looking at today. He doesn't give all the details. You have to dig into the Word of God to find much of what I have spoken so far today about. But the point that I want you to understand is this. The time is approaching for these things to take place. And we need to be ready. And we need to proclaim these truths to all who will hear. We need to let the light shine so brightly in these last days, in these days of darkness. Because when the light goes out, there is no hope. There is no future. But God has promised all of us who believe a hope and a future. That's why these things are so seriously important for us to understand and begin to realize if we are to be effective in our witness for Christ, these are the kinds of things we need to know so that as they begin to unfold, we can point that to those who do not believe and say, see, this is what the Word of God has spoken about. This is what God's Word says with regard to what you are seeing here. I'm kind of hoping that the Ezekiel War does break out before the rapture of the church because that's a really good tool for us if it happens that way. But Jesus now in this Gospel record in chapter 24, 
We'll begin where we left off the last time, after the resurrection, I mean rather the tribulation. After that period of seven years, Jesus discusses these are the events that will follow. And I'll reread verse 22 of chapter 24. Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And remember, we talked about who are the elect. It is a reference to the Jews. The Jews are indeed God's elect, God's chosen people. And yes, it is true that Paul does tell us that the church is also the elect of God. But in this context, Jesus is not talking about the church. He's talking about the nation of Israel. He goes on to say in verse 23, where we want to pick up from the time that we last spent together, then if anyone says to you, look, here is a Christ, or there, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Keep in mind that what Jesus is here saying is that there are going to be people who will come on the scene who say, there is the Christ, or over there, and he's hiding here, or he's in the desert over there. Don't believe them. He's warning the Jews, stay away from those who try to convince you that this is the Christ. There will be many who will come. And there have been many. Even in the church age, there have been many. But this is after the tribulation of those days. that There will be others who will come and say, I know where the Christ is. Don't believe it, he says. They need to be discerning as much as we need discernment. They will need discernment in those days as well. He says in verse 25, See, I have told you beforehand. You should be aware because he has told you already about these things. Therefore, if they say to you, Look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is the inner rooms, do not believe it. That's why... When the Jehovah's Witnesses in 1917 said that the Lord was coming and he didn't appear, then they made up, they fabricated a story saying that he has come and he's in a secret place in Manhattan. And the Jehovah's Witnesses are the only ones who apparently know that location. Well, Jesus says, if they tell you that there's a Christ that you can look for and he's in a hiding place, don't believe it. So why do the Jehovah's believe it, Jehovah's Witnesses? Because they're duped into believing it. They're deceived into believing it. Don't let deception take you. Therefore, he says in verse 26, Therefore I say to you, look, he's in the desert. Do not go out. Oh, look, he's in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as a lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, it's going to be evident. You've seen lightning. Lightning flashes and it happens quickly. It happens suddenly. And it is bright. And it is obvious. That was lightning. You can tell. And that's what he's saying here. The coming of the Lord is something that everybody is going to see. And Zechariah tells us that very thing. They will look upon him whom they pierce, Zechariah tells us in in the 14th chapter, 12th chapter of, of Zechariah. It's a great read. Take the time to look into that Old Testament prophecy. And then he says in verse 28, For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Interesting statement. Jesus is using a, a, a phrase that apparently they were familiar with. It was common if there was a body in the desert that there would be eagles or vultures flying around and consuming that which was decaying. 
the odor of the decaying flesh attracts the birds, and the birds would come, and they all are birds of prey. They would come and consume that which was dead. There's only a couple of places in the Word of God where we can kind of draw some kind of a conclusion from what Jesus just said here. And I believe it's accurate for us to realize that what he's referring to is recorded for us in the book of Revelation also. That there is going to be a time when Jesus says, I have prepared a sacrifice. And that sacrifice is dead bodies, and the dead bodies are sacrificed for the birds of prey. They are coming to feed on those decaying bodies at the end of that tribulation period, what we know of as the Battle of Armageddon will have taken place. Blood will flow for 200 miles in great carnage. Millions of souls will have perished. Their bodies will be consumed by the birds of prey because God will have prepared for that purpose that sacrifice. I think that's what Jesus is referring to here for where the carcass is. These, there the eagles will be gathered together. Again, that happens at the end of the tribulation period, at the very end. And then Jesus talks about His coming. After the tribulation period, He's going to come at exactly the time that is prescribed in the Word of God. And this is what Jesus says about that coming. He says in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, listen to these things. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. If you wonder, well, how can that be? Read Joel. The, gospel, or the, the Old Testament prophet Joel speaks of these things as well at the last day. These are events that are going to take place. Now, the sun won't shine and the moon won't give its light. The moon can't give its light because the moon is a reflection of sunlight. If Jesus had put it the other way around, the moon is going to be darkened and the sun won't shine, then you could question the veracity of what Jesus is saying here, scientifically. But you can't do that with this presentation of what Jesus said. He says very specifically, the sun first will not shine. It will be darkened. How it will happen, we're not told. What are the consequences of such an event? terrible consequence of such an event. But God is in control and God will maintain what He needs to maintain in order for these events to take place and for mankind to survive through this terrible, terrible, chaotic event that's described here. Stars falling from the heavens. I don't know about you. I like looking at stars at night. I like seeing the Milky Way on a really dark, crisp night. I like seeing the various constellations, the galaxies that are formed. I like looking at the Big Dipper. I like looking at Andromeda. I like looking at Perseus, where some of the largest stars in the galaxy are located. I like looking as far as my eye can see, and I realize that I can't see very far at all. But we've got a telescope out about over a million miles away from Earth, orbiting the sun in a fixed orbit, and giving us a perspective that we've never, ever noticed before about our universe. 
and they're finding some things out that are completely contrary to what they believed with regard to the beginning of time. I think that God has allowed for mankind to achieve such things for such a time as this. Because every time the James Webb telescope sends a new picture of its observations, they're scratching their heads and saying, how can this be? We've got to refigure everything we know about the existing universe. That's because we know nothing. But God knows all. And God's in control. If he says the stars are going to fall, the stars will fall. The powers of heaven will be shaken. Verse 30 says, Then, with those events taking place, then the Son of Man will come, will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Jesus, when he was before the Sanhedrin, they were accusing him of blasphemy. And the high priest finally asked the question, Are you the Son of God? And Jesus' answer was in the positive, Yes. And you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory, and that will happen, just as Jesus said. Just as Daniel said in chapter 7 of that great prophetic book, that he will stand before the Ancient of Days, And He, as the Son of Man, will be sent by the Father and He will come to reign upon the earth. And He will come in glory to do so. Jesus is just affirming what the Old Testament prophets have said and what He Himself had said on that last day of His life. Verse 31 says, And He will send His angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together His elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Remember, we said that there is going to be a gathering of the people to Jerusalem where he will sit in judgment of the sheep and the goats. And this is that event spoken of by Jesus himself here. The angel will be sounding a trumpet sound and all of the peoples, in particular the Jews, will be gathered to the land. But all the peoples will be gathered for judgment. And that is that final judgment that he will place upon this world before he takes the throne of David. Now in verse 32, Jesus presents a parable. It's an interesting parable because he doesn't explain what the elements of this parable are. We have to dig into the Word of God to determine that. And again, this is one of those areas where there is much disputing about the meaning of this parable. But this is what I believe is a correct understanding. Let's read the parable first. He says in verse 32, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Jesus is talking, again, in a parable form. And remember what a parable is. It is presenting something that is 
like what is true. It is using an illustration to emphasize a reality. Parable. The word in the Greek language is a combination of two words which implies coming alongside. Parabalo. And that implies that what Jesus is here doing is he's teaching his disciples and us that there is something that is revealed to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear what he is implying about the end times. And this is what I believe Jesus is talking about. Remember in the Word of God, the first instance of something mentioned is usually a major tool in determining what that particular item might mean in future references. So the fig tree, well, you can go all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. When Adam sinned and Eve, they ate the apple, (laughs) the fruit, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know that's why we call it the Adam's apple? It really wasn't an apple, I'm sure of that. It must have been a very, very appealing fruit. I'm sure of that. But they ate of it. God had told them, when you eat of the fruit of that tree, you shall surely die. Well, they didn't die physically. Something else had to have happened. And I submit to you that they, at the time that they had spent up till then, in the Garden of Eden, were triune beings because God said, let us make man in our image. And God is a triune being. And so I believe that man was created by God in a physical sense, the body and the soul and spirit. And what happened when Adam and Eve ate of that fruit is that their spirit died. And so they no longer were spirit-driven. That's why Adam and Eve recognized the fact that they were naked. And they were embarrassed by it. Up until then, there was no issue for that because they were not concerned with their body function. They were concerned with their spiritual connection to God. And that got taken away. And all that was left is the body-driven source of life. Life is in the blood. So God was very, very clear that what took place was indeed death. In fact, Paul picks up on that very thing. And he says, when you and I were given the wonderful message of the salvation that is available by faith, and we received that, and we were born again, the Bible tells us we were regenerated. Paul puts it this way, we were quickened. In other words, we were made alive. Well, we were already alive, weren't we? But there was something else that was made alive that was already dead. And that which was dead was our spirit. And so you make the conclusion from that that when we were born again, our spirits were made alive and we are now triune beings once again. That's wonderful stuff. But we're in the process of being completed in that which he has accomplished through his salvation. And that's why we need to understand that every day that we are living, we're being drawn closer and closer to that place of fellowship with our Savior. 
and we are being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit who is in us. We are being sanctified on a daily basis until we reach that point in that day when we see Him face to face, when we were going, we are going to be like Him. We will see Him. We will know Him as we have been known. We will be in glorified bodies. And I believe that that is a far better state than even Adam and Eve were in when they were in the Garden of Eden because they had not yet eaten of the tree of life. If they had, they would have accomplished that which God has accomplished for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They would have been in glorified bodies had they eaten the tree of life, but instead they ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a consequence, we have what we have in the world today. Corruption, sin, death, all of that will be taken care of finally by the Lord God Almighty in the last day. So the fig tree, I'm getting back to that by the way, I, I know I've diverted somewhat from that which I was going to say, but here's what I wanted you to understand. The fig tree was what Adam and Eve used to clothe themselves. They took leaves from the fig tree and they sewed them together and they made themselves some kind of garment to cover themselves, to cover their nakedness. Well, they thought that was good enough. God comes along and says, Adam, where are you? They were hiding. They didn't want God to see what they had done. God knew. So God asks the obvious question, Adam, what have you done? Have you eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He had no other excuse but one. That woman that you gave me made me do it. Well, we use the same kinds of excuses today, don't we, men? Yeah, yeah, I'll admit it. <laughs> Fig tree. It was used by Adam to cover sin. Well, as time went on, the nation of Israel became a people. And it wasn't until the nation of Israel came to be a people that the fig tree actually comes into view once again. Because the nation of Israel is referred to as a fig tree. Also as a vineyard. That's grapes. And figs aren't grapes, I understand. But the fig tree was central with regard to the nation of Israel. Each man would sit under his own fig tree in the coming kingdom. The fig tree was central to the nation of Israel. It still is today. It's a symbol of the unity of the nation of Israel. When Jesus went into the temple area on the second day after he entered for the first time on Palm Sunday, he was hungry, it tells us. We saw that in, I believe it's Matthew chapter 11. He saw a fig tree. Not 11, but later on. It matters not, really, but it's in the book of Matthew. He saw a fig tree, and it had leaves. And he went to that fig tree thinking that he might be able to take some figs off of it for nourishment. He found none. And he cursed that fig tree. Remember that? And he said, from now on and forever, you will not bear fruit. The fig tree withered and died. That was a picture of Israel. That's what Matthew wanted us to see. That was a picture of the fact that they would have been a fruitful people if they only had believed 
in what God had done for them and what God had expected of them. But they were not willing. And because they were not willing, they were not bearing fruit. Just like that fig tree was not bearing fruit. And Jesus judged that fig tree. And Jesus judged that nation. That's why we say that in this passage, Jesus in this parable is saying something that has to relate then to this concept of God's judgment against His people. The nation of Israel. So this fig tree reference is indeed, I believe, a reference to the people of God, the Jewish nation. So again, back at verse 32, he says, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. He's saying, use this to understand that the time is near for these events to take place. Well, what is this? It is the fig tree becoming, once again, able to bear fruit. Leaves showing up in the fig tree. You know then when the leaves show up that summer is near. What happened with the nation of Israel that relates to this? 1948. Israel became a nation. After almost 2,000 years, the same ethnicity, the same language, the same nationality, without a land they could call their own, they continued to exist In that way, they're the only nation that has ever accomplished such a thing. And they, at the appointed time, became a nation in the land that God had given to them in 1948. That does not mean that they are spiritually arrived. It means that they have physically arrived, and that is the fig tree now showing forth its leaves. No fruit yet, just leaves. But it's proof, according to Jesus, that the time is near. So that's why we say, let's keep on looking up. Let's know that the things that God has promised in His Word are about to be revealed. They are about to be fulfilled. And I believe that the time is very, very short. You look around at what's going on in the world today. You look at the anger that people have against the nation of Israel all over the world. The Bible tells us that Israel will be a stumbling block. And they are indeed a stumbling block for the nations. You keep in mind that what the Word of God says about the nation of Israel in the last days could not have been possible if Israel was not a nation today. But they are. The fig tree has begun to bear its branches and put forth leaves, just as Jesus said. And the result of that, again, in verse 33, so, seeing that that is taking place, you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. We're close. Then he goes on to say, verse 34, Assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. The big question here is, what does he mean by this generation? There are a lot of different possibilities. Some believe that he's referring to the nation of Israel because the word Genos in in the uh, Greek language can refer to a people group. I don't believe it does, but some believe that that's the case. And so what they say is their interpretation of this passage is that the Jewish people will not pass away until all these things take place. I don't really adhere to that. I don't really think it's quite as accurate as what I am about to share with you with regard to the generation being a period of time where a certain group of people have been living upon the earth and will continue to live until they pass away. They die. 
everybody has to die at least once. You know that. Some of us have been born before 1948. I'm not raising my hand. I know some of you are older than that. 1948 was a year that Israel became a nation. Is it possible that what Jesus is saying is that generation, not this generation, but that generation that was alive at the time the fig tree began to bear its leaves and still alive when the coming of the Lord takes place? I believe that that is the most logical conclusion. Now, some have been a little bit over the top with regard to their understanding of how many years is a generation. There are three or four different places in the Word of God where you can kind of choose, if you want, one or another of time frames. For instance, the wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. So some believe that a generation is 40 years long. And if that were the case, then Jesus should have come back by 1988. As a matter of fact, there was a very popular book written around that time said, 88 reasons why Jesus is coming in 1988. It was a big seller. It was wrong. There are all kinds of other Bible-believing Christians who set dates like this. God says very plainly in His Word, we are not to set dates. So that's completely contrary to what Jesus expects of His church. No man knows the day of the hour. Well, some thought, well, if it's not 1988, then perhaps we can look at a generation as being a hundred years. Because after all, God told Abraham that his people would be in Egypt for 400 years. And then he says, in the fourth generation, they will be returned to the land. That implies four into 400 is 100 years. One generation is 100 years. Well then, from 1948 until 2048, that's the time period that's being described. That's plausible. It doesn't have to be exactly 100 years. It could be any time before that hundred years is up. So I can, I could settle that for that. I, I don't want to wait till 2048. I want it to happen sooner than that. In fact, my desire is that it happens right here, right now. But that requires that the last person to be saved will have been saved when we're raptured because the Word of God tells us that there is coming a day when the fullness of Gentiles will have come in. That implies that there is a total number of individuals who will be saved throughout all of the church age. And if any one of us here in this room has not been saved, then get saved because you might be the last one and then we get out of here. That would be good for me. I'm glad to have that possibility exist. I don't know if it's so, but listen, it could indeed happen any time. But the point is, we don't know. There are a couple of other calculations that people have made. And again, it's fruitless. You may remember one of the books that was recently published about blood moon. And the blood moon was a sign of Christ's coming. It sold a lot of books. But it was just absolutely unbiblical. Only God knows the time. Jesus himself didn't know. No sense in speculating. No, spe- no sense in trying to figure it out. Just be prepared. That's what he says. Verse 36, Of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Then he goes on to explain. He says, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. 
For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the son of the coming of the Son of Man. The days of Noah. Those are evil days, by the way. Just kind of like what you would say our day is. Our day is filled with all kinds of evil. In Noah's day, God judged the world as a result of all the evil that had been taking place. And he found only Noah and his family to be faithful. And he instructed Noah to build an ark. And keep in mind, he told Noah also that it was going to rain. And Noah didn't know what that meant. He didn't know what rain was. In that day, the earth was refreshed every day. Not with rain clouds pouring rain down upon them, but the dew of the earth replenished on a daily basis. There was a different environment altogether in Noah's days before the flood. But God promised Noah, you need to build this ark and you're going to protect yourself and your family and all the animals and birds and everything that I bring to you will be put into the ark. And Noah, when everything is in place, I will shut the door and seal it from the outside. That's the work of Jesus Christ. Sealing us. We didn't have anything to do with our being protected by God from that which is to come. He is the one who provides that final measure of beautiful, wonderful grace. He protects us in that way and will protect us in that same way in the last days. We will not go through the tribulation just like Noah did not have to endure the flood. Oh yes, he was there on the waters, but the flood destroyed everything except for him and all that were in that boat. He took them out to protect them, to save them from the wrath that was to come. He gives a few more illustrations. And again, there are some who don't agree with this understanding, but this is what I will give to you based on what we've just read. In verse 40 it says, Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding in the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. Be ready. could happen any moment. The imminent return of Christ. Now, if you were talking about what we referred to earlier this morning in our previous presentation here uh, with regard to the events that are going to take place, I had mentioned that the glorious appearing of the Lord where He sets His feet upon Mount Zion is going to happen at the end of the tribulation period. That will indeed be the case. But that's not what He's referring to here. That event can be easily known by anyone who is on the face of the earth if they know the Scriptures. Because the Scriptures declare that from the time that the desecration of the temple takes place, when Antichrist reveals himself to be 
supposed God of all, that's at the middle of the tribulation period, and the Word of God is very, very specific. There's a number of days from that moment until the end of the tribulation. It's 1,260 days, three and a half years, 42 months. However you calculate it, based on a 360-day year, those numbers are very specific, and it means that you could count the days from the time he goes into the temple until the time of Christ's return. He's not talking about his coming upon the earth in secret. He's talking about the taking away of the church. That's us. Take note. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. You're in the field during a certain part of the day. The other gospel records, I believe it's Luke, gives us three different options. The third one is two in the bed. One will be taken and the other left. If he's coming at one point in time, the record gives us three different time periods in which the Lord might come. And because the earth is a globe, it could be three o'clock in the afternoon in North America. It could be midnight in Australia. It could be early morning in England. And in China, it could be late in the evening. He describes that as a likelihood when he comes that there will be men in the middle of the day, men in the middle of the night, men and women, I should say, in all different time periods, all at once experiencing the one event of his taking us away. Jesus must have known the earth is a globe. I think he did. The bottom line in all of this is his statement that we must watch. Be ready. That's why he gives a warning. If the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. It's pretty good if you know that the thief is coming at 7 o'clock. You'd be ready for the thief, wouldn't you be? Well, that's the idea. He's coming suddenly. And none of us will be ready. None of us will be saying, okay, I think the Lord's coming in five minutes. I'm going to stop what I'm doing because I know it's sin. So I'm going to live for Jesus these last five minutes and then He's coming and He'll take me home. It doesn't work that way. If you're living in sin now and you are thinking that well, he's not going to come for a while, so I don't have to worry about it. You don't want to think that way. What you want to say is, Lord, I want to be ready whenever it is that you come, so I want to be living for you. I want to be doing what is right in your sight. I want to be pure and without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle before you. I want to be as a chaste virgin presented to you so that I might not have to stand before you ashamed. That's how we should be living. That's why the imminency of Jesus Christ is so important for us to really adhere to and understand the implication of it. He is saying very clearly, be prepared for He's coming for His bride. He's coming for His bride. That's you. That's me. That's the church. That's all who believe the bride of Christ should never, ever, ever Disregard the promises of God's Word. Peter warned, in the last days there are going to be scoffers. There are going to be some who say, oh, don't give me that. 
Everything's gone just as it has for the last 15,000 or more years since mankind began recording its history. Well, they didn't really start recording history until about 4,000 years ago, but they'll stretch it to 15 just to make it sound like we've been around for a while. Oh, it doesn't matter. Everything from the very beginning, it's all the same. No change. After all, didn't Solomon write, there's nothing new under the sun? Yeah, he did. Paul says, but the Lord is coming, and we're to be ready. Peter said the same thing. John said the same thing. James and Jude said the same thing. Be ready. I'd like to end with a couple of passages from 1 Thessalonians, because 1 Thessalonians, written by the Apostle Paul, is such a great book to read with regard to the end times, because in every one of the five chapters in that short book, he gives us information about the coming of our Lord. Read with me. Chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians, verse 10. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Who's he talking to? The church. What's coming? God's wrath. What's he going to do? Deliver us from that wrath. How plain is that? Pretty plain to me. You will not experience the wrath of God if you are a believer. But you're to wait for His Son, Jesus Christ, from heaven. He delivers us from that wrath. Chapter 2, verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown or rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? He's coming for His church. And it brings great joy to Him to receive unto Himself His bride, an unblemished, spotless bride that is presented to Him at that time. He's not coming then to set up His kingdom. He's coming then to enter into a relationship with His bride at the marriage feast of the Lamb. That's what will take place for us during that seven-year period of time. Down below, we'll be in the cloud with Him, enjoying the wonderful blessings that He has in store for us as His church. Chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, again, the last verse, verse 13 says, So that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. Now, that's an interesting statement because what he's saying here is at the end of that tribulation period, that feast that we will have experienced in heaven, at the end of the tribulation period, he is coming with his saints. We will be with him. If we have not already gone up to be with him, how can we then go back with him to the earth? So here he's saying this is the glorious appearing that is being referenced here. And he says... He expects for us to live in such a way that our hearts would be established blameless in holiness before our God and Father so that we can be with Him when He comes. That means that if you want to live in sin, if you want to stay in a life of corruption, have at it. You ain't going to be joining the church if you do. That's a stark warning to anyone who thinks... Well, since He forgives all sin, past, present, and future, I can keep on going on and doing what I want to do, and He's going to forgive me for it. No, it doesn't work that way. Paul expressly said, that would be a terrible thing for you to think 
is even possible, remotely possible. God forbid that you should think such things. We are to live holy lives, blameless lives. That's the fruit of the work that we do in this life as believers. Well, chapter 4. We quote chapter 4 often with regard to the rapture of the church. And it's very clear that in verses 13 through 18, it is a reference to the taking away from this earth of the body of Christ. I won't read it in its entirety, but he says in verse 18 of chapter 4, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. What words? The words that he's just spoken with regard to the snatching away of his bride, taking away of his church from off this earth, saving us from the wrath that is to come, taking us to himself. Chapter 5. In the middle of chapter 5, in verse 9, he says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Therefore, comfort each other. That's what he said in verse 18 of chapter 4. He says it again here, just in case you forgot or didn't remember or didn't see the first reference. It's there again. He wants us to be comforted with these words. How could I be comforted with the thought of having to endure seven years of tribulation upon the face of this earth? How could I be comforted when I see so many people dying over a third of the population in the first three years, and then another quarter of the population after that, dying of all the various things that are coming upon the face of the earth, judgment of the sinful man, all during that period of time of wrath. God says, you don't have to. God says, it's not for you if you're a believer. You comfort yourself with these words, for these words are true. Edify one another just as you were also doing. Continue to edify. Build yourselves up in your holy faith. That's what Paul is saying. Lastly, in verse 23 of that great chapter, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Remember I talked about the fact that we are being sanctified. We are being changed every day of our lives. It's a process. And it is taking place, whether you're aware of it or not, it is taking place in you as a believer. And he is preparing you for that day when you will be like him. And you will be glorified in your glorified body in that day that He comes for you. That's why He says, May the peace of God sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body, triune beings, can only be applied to the church. Everybody else is just body and soul. The spirit is dead. But it's made alive, quickened at the day you accept Christ as your Savior. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will forget to do it. Scratch that word, forget. He will do it. Because He's promised it. Do you believe it? Are you ready for it? Are you living as though you believe it? Are you living your life as though you're prepared for His coming? 